Welcome to the Orchard. I am so glad that you are joining us, either you're here in the building or online or in the podcast later, wherever you are with us. Before I get into today's message, we, next week is a big week. We're going to have, right after second service, uh, we're going to have a Sunday fun day. That means we're going to have a bounce house for the kids. That means we're going we're gonna to provide fried chicken, and you guys are in charge of bringing sides and desserts. Now, you don't have to, but if you want to, and your last name begins with A through L, bring a side dish, or M through Z, bring a dessert. We're also going to be doing some outdoor baptisms uh, next Sunday at that event. And so if you're here today, and you have made that decision to receive Jesus as your Savior at some point, and not been baptized, next week is a great opportunity for you. For others of you, you're going to ask, well, I, I was baptized when I was a kid in a different situation. Can I, can I get baptized? Listen, um, yes, if you want to be baptized, come talk to myself, email um, Ellen at the office, or you know what, just show up with some swim trunks and talk to me then. But that's going to be next Sunday, right after second service, and just a warning, some of those 8.30 early birds will also be there so you can meet them, okay? All right. Well, hey, we are looking today, we're in our Genesis series, and we're in Genesis 11. We're looking at something called the Tower of Babel. Now, I have never preached the Tower of Babel before, well, until last service. I've never preached it before this, this weekend in my life, and it was quite a challenge. The Tower of Babel is only nine verses long, and it seems, when I first looked at it, to, be, to give us very limited insight into God's nature. It's kind of a flyby of a story, but as I read and as I researched, what I began to see is it not only reveals God's heart, but it has a challenge for us today in, in our modern day and time, Tower of Babel also has an event that mirrors it in the New Testament. Now, I'm not going to tell you what it is. I just want you to ponder that, and as we go through this, see if you can figure out which New Testament event is mirrored of uh, the Tower of Babel. Now, before we get into the Tower of Babel, a little bit of background. Noah had three sons who all survived the flood. Noah's son, Ham, was cursed for dishonoring his father. And that son, Ham, he had a son named Cush and then another son named Nimrod. Nimrod is not something we usually name our children these days. Nimrod, uh, it means re rebel, a rebellion. Nimrod is mentioned four times in the Bible as well as other places in ancient history. He's the builder of cities and civilizations. And let me read what Genesis 10 says about Nimrod before we get into our Tower of Babel. It says this, Nimrod was the first heroic warrior on the earth. Since he was the greatest hunter in the world, his name became proverbial. People would say, this man is like Nimrod, the greatest hunter in the world. He built his kingdom in the land of ba Babylonia with the cities of Babylon and Erech and Akkad and Kalna. From there, he expanded his territory to Syria, Assyria, building the cities of Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ir, Kala, and Rezin. Nimrod is a towering figure who gathered people to him. He conquered. He led and he's a heroic figure who accomplished a lot, and, and people feared him. He's seen by a lot of sages as the prototype for evil in many ways, and even the Antichrist. He's built an empire, and he's setting himself up as the God King. Now, in Nimrod's narcissism and arrogance, he wanted to build something that would rival God, which is how we get to Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. So let's start. We're going to read the entire nine verses of the Tower of Babel, and then we're going to dive into it. It says this, at, at one time, all the people of the world spoke the same language and used the same words. As the people migrated east, they found a plain in the land of Babylonia, and they settled there. They began saying to each other, let's make bricks and harden them with fire. 
In this region, bricks were used instead of stone. Tar was used for mortar. Then they said, come, let's build a great city for ourselves with a tower that reaches into the sky. This will make us famous and keep us from being scattered all over the world. But the Lord came down to look at the city and the tower that people were building. Look, he said, the people are united. They speak the same language. After this, nothing they set out to do will be impossible for them. Let's go down and confuse them with different languages, and they won't be able to understand each other. In that way, the Lord scattered them all over the world, and they stopped building the city. That is why the city is called Babel, because that is where Lord, the Lord confused the people with different languages. In this way, he scattered them all over the world. Now, strange passage. We have these nine verses. People are building something. God seems to not like tall buildings. But, I mean, that, it has to be more than that, right? I mean, today, the, the Burj Khalifa is the tallest building in the world. It's over half a mile tall. And God didn't come down and confuse anybody because they, they dared build a tall building. I mean, what's going on here? What's going on in Genesis 11? Why is God concerned with this tower? And, of course, how does it connect to the New Testament, to Jesus? And how does it connect to you? How does it connect to us today? Well, let's dive in. It says, at one point, all the people spoke the same language and used the same words. We're only a few generations from Noah. We're one generation from his sons who were on the ark, and these people are still speaking the same language. As the people migrated to the east, they found a plain in the land of Babylonia and settled there. Now, one thing to note is that in Genesis 9, God commanded Noah and his sons to, to scatter, to go inhabit the earth. To go be, to multiply, be fruitful, but to go throughout the earth, not to settle, but to go inhabit it. And here we see they moved just a little bit east, they stopped there, and they chose to settle. They're grouping together instead of spreading as God asked them to. They began saying to each other, let's make bricks and harden them with fire. In this region, bricks were used instead of stone and tar used for mortar. Now, we wouldn't think of it this way when you're first reading this, but what that sentence actually is talking about is technology. It's this new technology called the brick. And I'm not even joking. No longer would they have to go and, and find a quarry and cut stone and somehow transport them back and then find a way to lift them, and, which would limit their, through cost and through time and through, through muscle. Now they can, they can bake a brick right there on the spot, cheaper, faster, and build. But like all technology... It comes with massive amount of potential for good, like the World Wide Web. I mean, when that thing was first invented, or the cell phone, I mean, to be able to make an emergency call or call a relative anytime you wanted, right? That's good. A massive potential for good. But it's also had a big impact on our society, on our free time, on ourselves. See, this is talking about technology here. It's always been this way. The brick doesn't sound like earth-shattering technology, but it allowed for them to build at a rate and an expense that was unseen of before that. And catch this, the brick is also man-made. Now, we have these people. They're thwarting the command of God to, to go inhabit and multiply. They're led by a mighty man who wants to conquer and rise up. They discover the brick and no longer need the God-made stones of the natural world here we have, in their own power, with their own technology, fulfilling their own dreams. That's what we have going on here. Then they said, come, let's build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we can make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered over the face of the earth. A few things to notice. 
they state that they don't want to be scattered. They don't want to spread out. There's some fear of this. They're, they're defying God's orders. We don't want to spread. We're going to gather. We're going to stay. Instead of going out, we're going to go up. That's what we're going to do. Let's build a city. And then let's build a tower. Taller than it's ever been built before. And you know what? What will that do? That will make a name for ourselves. That will, that will mean something about us. That will mean something about me. Let's do something with our man-made technology that defies God, reaches to the heavens, and makes a name for ourselves. Now, the ancient historian Josephus, he wrote about Nimrod, and he has some fascinating things in his ancient writings. Listen to this. It's in some older language, so hang with it. Josephus says, Now, it was Nimrod who excited the people to such an affront and contempt of God. Nimrod was the grandson of Ham, who was the son of Noah. And Noah was a bold man with great strength. But Nimrod persuaded them not to ascribe it to God, as if it was through his means that they were now happy, but to believe that it was their own courage which they went out and got this happiness. It's us, it's you, it's me. Nimrod also gradually changed the government to tyranny, seeing no other way to turn people from the fear of God than to bring them into constant dependence on his government's power. He also said he would, be revenged, he would take revenge on God. And should God want to drown the world again, he would build a tower so tall that God would not be able to drown him. It's fascinating. Nimrod and the people were building a tower so that God could not destroy them again. In many ways, Nimrod is wanting to build a permanent ark. And arks are meant to carry somebody to salvation. He wants to build something to defy God's judgment, to get above it, to be higher. Now, what this shows is that, A, they don't know the nature or the promises of God, who said, I'm not going to flood the earth again. They also are placing their faith in their own selves, into saving themselves from whatever God or life would bring them. You see, Nimrod is positioning himself as the new Noah. He gathers people to build something, a permanent ark, so that he can rise above anything God would bring to him. But what do they build? How do you, how, in your imagination, what do you think the Tower of Babel looked like? I think we actually know. I think we know what these ancient bricklayers made because due to archaeological finds, we know the type of tower construction from even the third millennia B.C., It's called uh, a a ziggurat. Now, ziggurats, they've been unearthed ancient ziggurats. In fact, they resemble a pyramid, but they're they're built differently. And we have a picture of one up here, the ziggurat of Ur, that they believe dates back to the time of Noah. And Ur is where Abraham, who we'll soon be studying, is from. Abraham very well might have seen and known this ziggurat. Here's what it looks like as they they have remade it. That's a, that is what it looks like in, in modern times. Now, knowing that the Tower of Babel was a ziggurat tells us more about Nimrod's motives and what God was thinking here. You see, a ziggurat is not just a tower for a tower's sake. A ziggurat is a sacred space. It's a spiritual place. The, the people weren't just trying to build something tall physically. They're trying to construct something tall spiritually. I believe the Tower of Babel is the first recorded religion in the Bible. And I know what you're thinking. You're like, is he kidding? Like, it's the Bible. It is a religion. Well, let me just catch this, catch this. 
By religion, here's what I mean. Religion is humanity's attempt to get to God. Religion is humanity's striving to get a spiritual reward. Heaven, transcendence, nirvana, whatever it would be, religion is striving and working to get there, to get up, to get to God. The spiritual reward would be whatever that religion has declared it. Religion is spiritual striving. That's what religion is. And if you look at the religions of the world, they are towers of Babel, doing hard work to build up an achievement to, to achieve something spiritually. That I do enough good deeds, I, 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 I do enough good, I, I, I get better, I transcend, I do something to get something. That's religion. But God didn't call us to a religion, and Jesus didn't die to start a religion. Jesus provided a relationship, and there is a huge difference. You see, there, there's, there's a vast difference between striving in a relationship and the sacrifice with a relationship with Jesus. To achieve a spiritual reward, religion always says do, and Jesus says done. In religion, you have to achieve for salvation. In relationship with Jesus, all the requirements have been completed by him. In religion, you strive. And with Jesus, you are saved. In religion, you reach, but in Jesus, we can rest. In religion, we are motivated to obey out of legalism. But with Jesus, we are motivated to obey out of love. In religion, you build a tower up to reach God's presence. But in Jesus, you are the temple of God's presence. In religion, you behave. But with Jesus, you, you belong Religion calls you a slave to whatever system it would be, but God calls you son. He calls you daughter. It's important to pause here and ask ourselves, am I striving in religion or am I resting in a relationship with Jesus? Because we can say we love Jesus, we can say we're following Jesus, and we can still be acting religiously, striving, working, building towers to try to achieve something. Or for many of us in this area or listening with us, you may say, I'm, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. Every spiritual practice has a religious element of doing to get. Anywhere in your life do you believe that if I do more good, God will be more pleased with me? Do you believe that if I do enough good, well, God will then protect me, heal me, or protect my family? Do you strive spiritually so that God will approve of you? Do you pay penance for, for forgiveness to achieve it? Do you operate out of ought-tos and, and shoulds so that God will bless you? You know, for many, God and spirituality has turned into a, a, a spiritual vending machine that we go there and we, we put whatever we need to put in there, good deeds, um, meditation, whatever it would be. I'm putting these church attendants, whatever it would be that we, I put in there and God vends me a blessing. God vends me protection for my family. Whatever he would give me was good because I put something in. But that, that's not a relationship. You see, religion, everything is a transaction. I do my part so that God will do his part. Or I do my spiritual part so that the spiritual thing works out. And if you would say that, yes, I believe in Jesus, I'm a Christian, but you're involved in some, some Tower of Babel religious activity, Christianity begins to look more like karma than a relationship. 
But instead of some big universe doling out good and bad, it's God. And, and if I do good, he gives me good. And if I do bad, oh no, he's going to give me bad. That's not the God of the Bible. You see, religion says, I obey. And therefore, I'm accepted. And Jesus, we know. I'm accepted, and therefore, I obey. Religion sees Jesus as a means. We know Jesus as the end. Religion says, God will love you if, and Jesus said, for God so loved the world. Today, it's important to be reminded that if you have come to Jesus for saving, your sins are forgiven. It's paid for. It's done. There's no penance left. Your guilt is washed you free. The price was paid once and for all on the cross. Romans 8.1 says, there's no condemnation for those in Jesus. For those who are in Jesus in faith for salvation, there's no condemnation left. And some of you might have walked in here or be listening with us today, and you would say, I believe in Jesus, but I'm living under condemnation. That is not God. That is not the gospel. And that's not how he wants you to operate. He wants you to, to live out of freedom, out of love, out of acceptance. The New Testament makes this point over and over that in Jesus, you are a new creation. The old is gone. And this is something that Amy and I want deeply ingrained in our children, this, this very point. And so we have, I will talk through with my, with my son or my daughter often, and I'll go, he knows the drill now. So he's like, no, daddy. Or she's like, yes, daddy. Like, but I still, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it, and I'm going to do it. I say, Elijah, buddy, if you do good and you obey me, will I love you more? No, daddy. Elijah, if you disobey or do bad things, will, will your daddy love you less? No, daddy. Buddy, does mommy and daddy, do we love you because of what you do? No, daddy. What do we love? Who I am. See, I love my son with an unconditional love, and I want him to be able to rest in that. And God loves me more than I love my son. God loves you more than you love your son, your child. God loves you so much, he sent his son for you. And there's nothing, there is nothing you can do to make God love you anymore. There's nothing you can do to make God love you anymore, and there's nothing you can do that will make God love you any less. Because his love is to the full. It's called agape love. It's complete. If you have come to know Jesus as your Savior, he can't love you anymore, and he won't love you any less. And so the goal is not to go out there and strive and try and work to get love. In Jesus, we already have it. Instead, in love, I go out and live for him. Louis Giglio puts it this way. He was talking of a swimming race. And anytime you're in a swimming race, you have the starting blocks, you dive in and you swim, and you touch the finish line. You see, in religion, the finish line is God's approval. And I have to work and strive and strain and race to get there. In religion, the finish line is God's approval. But in Jesus, the starting block is God's approval. You start from love. You race in grace. You race already loved and accepted. The difference between the racer who's swimming to get, uh, to get acceptance or swimming from acceptance, the internal reality of those two people is completely different. Orchard, where are you striving today? 
either in, the, either, either in a religion with Jesus or, even, or spiritually, where are you striving, doing things, hoping to get things in return? And I have to keep working. I have to keep doing to get. If you are working for God's approval, in Jesus you are loved. Loved enough that he would send his own son. Loved enough that you, you don't have to achieve any religious trophy. And that's what the Tower of Babel was, a religious trophy. It was humanity building a sacred space, a temple. A temple is a place where God and humanity are meant to meet. A place where God's supposed to come down and inhabit. But here we have this counterfeit tower, this temple. It's a place where humanity wanted to become like God and make a name for ourselves. There is spirituality just like this. You see, in a temple, you honor in the name of God. And, and you, here at the orchard, we lift Jesus' name above all things. All politics, all problems, everything Jesus. But in a tower, you want to elevate your own self. One thing that's interesting about the Tower of Babel and, and this, this, those nine verses, and this, this is something called a literary chiasma. I know all of you already know what I'm, where I'm headed with this, right? I, but, you know, just go with me for a second. A chiastic form of writing is a style of poetry or story or narrative that hinges on a central point, the whole story. Each part of the story is mirrored, the first and the last, as it gets closer and closer until it gets to the center point that the author wants to highlight. The chiasm, chiasma of, of, of this verse right here, this account, it starts with the unity of language and the unity of place. And it ends with the disunity of language and the disunity of place. And it works its way in as a mirror until it gets to the middle. The center of the chiasma is the point the author wants to highlight. It's the, the centerpiece of the writing. And in the Tower of Babel, we have humanity building something to reach God, to reach God-likeness. Which is ironic because despite all of their best efforts in Genesis 11, we see the center point of the chiasma is that the Lord came down. That's the centerpiece of this whole thing. As they went up, they did their best, but the Lord came down. Now I'm going to show you a picture. We're going to put it up here briefly because the last service wanted to read it. They didn't listen to me. But there's an, there is the chiasma of Genesis 11. The top and the bottom, it works its way in. And there in the focal point, you can see God came down. Despite their greatest striving, despite the tallest thing they could build, despite the greatest religious efforts, God stooped down to see. You see, they're not only disobeying his commands, not only not spreading or populating, they're creating a religion. They're making themselves to be God-like. What does he do? He doesn't flood the earth. He doesn't destroy them. He confuses their language. And what is the result? The very thing he wanted them to do, spread. I told you that the, the Tower of Babel has a mirror event in the New Testament. Don't say it out loud, but have you, have you discovered what it is yet? There's a New Testament account that mirrors the Tower of Babel. We preached about it a few weeks ago. Let me give you some clues and you'll, you'll catch on maybe. Here in Genesis, we have humanity high up and striving. God comes down and they begin to speak different languages. This leads to their disunity and the spreading of the people. 
And on Pentecost in the New Testament, Acts 2, we have the disciples of Jesus in the upper room waiting. God comes down. They begin to speak in different languages. This leads to unity in Jesus and the spreading of the gospel. In both accounts, the center point is that God came down. And what's the center point of the gospel? Is that Jesus came down. Down. It's central and it's seminal. It's the moment of the Babel and Pentecost in the gospel. The Tower of Bible teaches us that our best spiritual striving, the best spiritual striving you can think of, and we have the cafeteria spirituality. Oh, I like a lot of that, little of that. Ooh, hold the smiting, a little, little bit of that. Yes, yes, yes. And we, we, we create a cafeteria meal of what we think spirituality should be. Listen, whatever you've created, whatever it is, or even if you're in this thing called Christianity and you're striving spiritually, we have to realize that it will t- get us nowhere and only leave us more confused. You see, what they should have built back then wasn't a tower. They shouldn't have built a tower. Do you know what they should have built? They should have built, they should have used that brick technology and they should have built something simple, something that Noah had already built, something that I think Abel already built, something that we're going to look ahead and Abraham's going to be building, something that Isaac and Jacob and Moses will build, something that Joshua, Gideon, King David, and Elijah will build. They should have saved all their religious building efforts on that tower and instead just built a simple altar. Because a tower is built out of pride. But an altar is where you offer your pride to die. Altars where you offer your first fruits and die to greed like Abel. An altar is where you offer your doubts and remain faithful to God like Noah. An altar is where you offer your future to God and go wherever he would ask like Abraham. An altar is where you offer the best of your life for the one who gave you life. An orchard, it's time for us to tear down our religious towers. It's time, whether it's spirituality or whether it's Christianity, whatever it would be for you, where you are striving instead of resting, where you are trying to achieve instead of living in the acceptance, where you are working instead of waiting on God. It's time to tear down our religious and spiritual towers and build an altar. An altar is where we offer ourselves, our life to God where we offer our best, an altar of worship. And we're gonna worship here at the end, an altar of worship where you offer your song, your, your heart to God. Jesus is the embodiment of all of this. At Babel, God came down. In Jesus, God came down. In Babel, they tried to go up and make a name for themselves. And Jesus came down in humility, humbled himself, and gave himself up. Why? so that you could be lifted high. So that instead of striving through religion or spirituality, you could actually have a relationship with God Almighty. Genesis 11, we see that at the center of the city of humanity, they built a tower of religion. But in the story, in the center of the story of God, we see he planted a cross. And yet still so many of us we run to the tower of spirituality. We run to the tower of religion. It gives us an immediate gratification, a transactional, I do this and I think God gives me that, or I do this and I level up, I transcend, whatever it would be. We run to the tower and try to achieve when the cross calls us simply to come and receive. The cross declares the price paid in full, the sacrifice complete, 
penance paid, striving done. And so that's what Jesus offers. He offers the way to a relationship that is contrary to the Tower of Babel. And I'm going to say a prayer right now. And for many of you, it's time for you to reaffirm your faith and say, I'm sorry, I've been, I've been striving in some areas. I've been believing in this vending machine and doing some things, and, and I'm sorry, God. And for others of you, you might be here today, and you're like, you know what? I have been trying it spiritually my own way. I've been trying it my own way. But Jesus, I want, I want, I want you. So will you pray with me? Father God, forgive us for our striving religiously. Forgive me for my spiritual striving. Jesus, I know you lived and died and resurrected. I place my faith in you. I ask you to give me your spirit. Live within me. That my sins would be forgiven. That you would give me peace in my present and hope in my future. In Jesus' name, amen. In a room like this and with people with us online and in other places, I know that there are a vast spectrum of both religious and non-religious spiritual people tuning in. And it doesn't matter where, where on that you fall, whether super spiritual, super religious, or some combination of, the, of them all. Listen, it is, it, is, it is a transactional I am doing to get. And I have picked what I like. And Jesus said, I came to give you a way out. I died on the cross that you, could, that you can be saved. And so as we go now into this song, this song is called Waymaker. And one thing that Jesus did is he made a way through all of that. Man, we love that stuff. But he made a way that we can get through the narrow path and have a relationship with God. And also there are people in here today, right now, are with us. And you are, you're not just striving, you are struggling some of you are in a very hard time right now. And you're wondering where God is. And as we sing this, let the words come from your soul and spirit and strengthen you. It says, even when I don't see you working, I know that you're doing it. Even when I can't feel you, I know you're doing it. Jesus, make a way for me. Make a way for my family. Make a way. May this be our anthem in this moment. And so we're going to take communion here. And then when the song starts, if you would stand with me and have this be the anthem of our hearts, asking Jesus to make a way. <laughs>